There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Horticulture Week podcast. I'm Matthew Appleby and today I'm with Gwendolyn von Parschen, who is chair of the John Brooks Denman Foundation. Now, Gwendolyn is a garden designer and writer who is working on a new initiative to perpetuate the legacy of the renowned British garden designer, having established a trust dedicated to continue his design legacy and the renovation and preservation of his garden, Denman's, in West Sussex. Now, Gwendolyn began her career as a US Senate legislative I can't even say that, legislative staffer on economic issues for Senators Slade Gordon and the late Senator John McCain. So as such, a bit of an unusual guest on our um, on our podcast. I don't think we've anybody had um, someone involved in American politics like that before. So um, Gwendolyn, like, um, your background is really interesting. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, when I, I graduated from the university, I... Um decided I thought it would be fun to be on a campaign. So I volunteered for a campaign. That's sort of how you got your foot in the door back in the day. And uh, the campaign I first worked on was for the late Senator Dan Evans, who had been governor and was running for the Senate because our very beloved Senator Scoop Jackson had been killed. Or actually, he had died of a heart attack when he heard about the downing of an American airplane over North Korea. Wow, that's a, that's a, that's an amazing background, and and Senator John McCain's a, a you know a name well known over over here. So what was he like to work for? Oh, he was brilliant. He was a, a very compassionate man, um, very intense, um, very thoughtful, and it, you know just generally really a moral compass of the Senate. I believe. Well, we're glad you're here to talk about John Brooks. Now, John um, died age eighty four in. 2018. 
but he's probably now more influential than ever in garden design circles, I would say. You know, he's best known for um, teaching his grid method of design. And um, he believed that, well, about garden design being an, an art form, but also gardens need to be practical too. I used to bump into him at Chelsea. He was always, you know, a great guy to talk to. And, and as I say, so influential even now. So what, what was the inventor of the modern garden's appeal to you, Gwendolyn? Well, it was an interesting thing when I switched from politics to garden design back in the early 90s. Someone recommended that I take one of his classes up in New York. I was living in Washington at the time, so I went up for a three-day master class and was absolutely blown away by the clarity of what he taught, but also the sheer beauty of the photos that he showed. I took the class a second time, and after the second class was over, he put all his drawings on the tables around us for us to look at. And in a way, they were more remarkable than the photographs were because they were just black and white plans like you would normally see from a designer. And they were just stunningly simple, one line flowing beautifully into another. I found it very inspiring. So when I finally got my first job, I was asked to work on a very large project up in um, upstate New York. And I persuaded the owner to hire John. It took me a year to persuade him. And we worked on that project probably for the next 12 years. It was amazing working with him. Oh, wow. She worked with him for, for that long. That is amazing. So how did you get involved in, in, in his garden, Denman's and, and the foundation there? That's a funny story. I came, to, I came for a visit. He used to tell me, when I came for an afternoon, oh, the next time you come, you must stay for a couple of days and we'll do this and we'll do that. So in 2015, I did come. Um, I heard that he'd had some trouble with a business partner and knew that he was getting on. I really wanted to see him and ended up working with him on his memoir, Landscape Legacy, which was published in 2018 by Pimpernel Press and working on sort of getting the garden sort of through this business dispute, which we finally managed to do at the end of 2017. I see. So um, what's the aim of the foundation? What's, what's, the, what's the plans with it? Well, initially, when we set it up with John, it was, you know, the idea was eventually the garden would end up in the foundation and it would be for teaching and education and to preserve his legacy. And what actually happened was he died. And I ended up owning the garden, so it's still my intention to transfer it to the foundation. But it became a lot more complicated because suddenly we had to figure things out on our own. We didn't really have a blueprint for him for how to move forward. And the garden was in quite neglected shape at the time. So we've spent the last four years now doing a lot of restoration to the garden and renovation to the buildings. Um, we've gone from looking like we had a, a very effective ground elder, which a, a ground elder ground cover to um, having lots of beautiful plants that now the ground elder is gone, um, have come up and, and have started to make the garden look much more interesting and rich, particularly bulbs. No, I mean, it was so sad when, when, when he died because there was an exhibition on about him at the Garden Museum at that time, I think, and, you know, he was so current still. I mean, what, what, how do you sort of account for him, you know, his longevity as a designer and, and still being so influential now? 
Well, I think John Doe is very much ahead of his time in many ways, and I, I think relatively underappreciated in in Britain. Um, first and foremost, as you mentioned before, was his grid method, which is really basically a design tool to sort of help you get that relationship between the garden and the building you're designing around in a in proper proportions, very much like an artist would use a grid on a on a canvas. And but he also in sort of introduced this whole idea that it was actually an outdoor living space. His first book, Room Outside, was published in 1969 and was completely groundbreaking in that sense of sort of introducing the fact that actually instead of being a collection of plants or sort of a place where you kept the rubbish and maybe there was a bench, to it could be an extension of, of what your living room or your kitchen was like, depending on, on where it came from. And he took that into another realm when he started thinking about the larger picture and how your planting needed to relate to your garden design. And he was very interested in environmental issues very, very early on. He was very influenced by Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, that was published in the early 60s. And so he taught this sort of, as you said before, this very practical side of gardening and design, but somehow made it beautiful and magical. He was also very interesting. One of my favorite quotes about him was uh, probably sort of penned in the 1980s. And, and it was looking back at his work and thinking, saying that you could have a drinks party in a John Brooks garden and you could read a book in a John Brooks garden. And if you didn't like gardening, you could do very little gardening indeed. Because for him, it was really about what the client wanted and how they want to use the space around their house. All of, all of these ideas are completely current. <laughs> no, I mean, he, he, he did an amazing array of gardens. I'm looking here, we've got... Um, Westminster Abbey uh, in Japan, Chicago Botanic Garden, a, a, a massive array. And also, I guess, to a lot of people in the UK, known for his, his uh, sort of pioneering work in it, Chelsea Flower Show. I mean, do you, do you think he'd do Chelsea, you know, if he was, he, if he was around now and, and, and active, would he, would he be doing Chelsea now, do you think? No, he, he, I think Chelsea is something, you know, he did until the, the 70s and then handed it over to the next generation. His first Chelsea Garden was 60 years ago next year. Wow. And it was, he was the first independent designer to show a garden at Chelsea. He had won a competition for the, uh, the uh, Institute of Landscape Architects. And he was sponsored, interestingly enough, by the Cement and Concrete Foundation. There's even asbestos in his garden in the form of chairs he used to chuckle. And that design was so simple. It was a townhouse garden. It was the first time a garden had been shown that was about a design space rather than about a collection of plants. So it was really, really controversial. He did win Flora Silver for it. And he went on to do, I think, six more Chelsea's, three of which he did for the Financial Times, all of which won gold in the early 70s. Um, and he did that with Robin Lane Fox from the FT. true pioneer as you say but uh just going going moving on to denman's in in west sussex what what what's happening happening there there's there's all sorts of uh, of things going on in terms of increasing visit numbers winning awards well, tell us all about that well it's my favorite topic matt <laughs> um I, I could talk about this till the cows come home and and um i promise not to um 
Denman's is just a magical, peaceful place. When John was still alive and we used to talk about the garden, he always said very specifically he wanted it to stay that peaceful country garden that he loved. And that was actually started by a woman named jo- Joyce Robinson, who very few people have heard about, although locally she she's a bit of a legend. Anyone who did meet her apparently um, found her to be a formidable and an amazing woman. She probably knew more about plants than anybody has forgotten in her lifetime. Um, and she's really the one who started the gravel gardens over 50 years ago now, after a trip to Delos. So when John got to Denman's in 1973, he discovered it through the yellow book of the National Garden Scheme. She'd had the garden open to the public since the late 60s. And he loved her naturalistic planting style, and he loved her use of gravel, which very few people were doing at the time. He was using gravel in gardens in London, sort of posh townhouse gardens, where the grass could look pretty muddy and horrible by the end of winter, and he was using it as an alternative sort of ground cover, paving uh, gravel, different sizes of gravel that he used. But she was doing it on a much larger scale at Denman's, and he really continued to work with that medium when he finally got to Denman's in, in 1980. And he, he continued on sort of fusing his planting style, which was far more architectural, with her very soft planting style. And the combination is just absolutely beautiful year-round. So what um, courses and uh, awards and um, ways to attract visitors have you got going on at the garden at the moment? Well, let's talk about the awards first, because I think they're, they're sort of signs of how much progress that we've made in the last four years. We were made a grade two garden in August of 2020, which was exciting, um, sort of an initiative with the Gardens Trust and the Sussex Gardens Trust to have the garden recognized as a post-war garden. It was one of 20 that was uh, post-war gardens that was listed in August of 2020. Uh, we were subsequently also reinstated as a partner garden in the RHS Partner Garden Scheme, which means that we're open one day a week uh, for free to, to card-carrying members of the RHS. And this year we won gold in the South and Southeast in Bloom competition, which is part of Britain in Bloom. That was a very exciting moment. And um, we've just been made a finalist, one of six finalists in the Partner Garden of the Year Award for the South and, uh, Channel, Southeast and Channel Islands. So we're quite proud of those achievements. They're huge milestones for us. Um, and before COVID, we had a lot of different things going on. And, and of course, COVID sort of set us back. Um, but we have some painting classes now. We actually have an artist in residence named Sue England, who is um, also local and absolutely astonishing. Um, she's on her website and she's got her own blog. Um, her work is just phenomenal. I've learned so much about the garden just from, from talking to her about it. Um, we also have some design courses coming up. There's a pruning workshop that we're doing in um, cooperation with Garden Masterclass, which is a brilliant um, organization run by Annie Guilfoyle and Noel Kingsbury. And then hopefully in the fall, we'll have some more design classes to announce. Um, and of course, watercolor with Joe Dowers, a local artist. So it's, it's all coming along and, and um, it's just wonderful to see people coming through the door for all of these events. Now, we just had a Christmas carol um, one-man show in in what used to be our cafe so lots of little things going on and hopefully more to add next year 
brilliant. So how, how are you making it all work commercially? Well, that's still part of our, our challenge. Um, again, COVID set us back a bit. We have a wonderful gift shop with a lot of um, lovely things for gardeners, but also it's, it's sort of well curated in that we have a lot of vintage and one-off things, lots of beautiful glass um, vintage vases and uh, garden pieces. We grow our own plants. Um, Mrs. Robinson started Denman's Plants in about 1970 um, and wrote later that she wished she started 10 years earlier. So what we do is we propagate a lot of plant material on our own uh, from the garden or that we start from seed or cuttings. Um, and a lot of them are quite unusual, which makes it fun. It's always fun to see what people walk off with, the things that have sort of struck their um, fancy what sort of visitor numbers are you hoping to get? Visitor numbers are a tricky business. We had quite a few more than this year than last year. I haven't seen the final number. And the reason it's a tricky business is because of the wear and tear on the garden. We just have to protect some of the grassy areas a bit. Um, the other thing that's challenging, one of the benefits of COVID was that we started a booking system. Um, we do take walk-ins, but it's very nice for people to be able to walk into the garden without being crowded. The garden is so peaceful. I've seen people come out of the garden with just sort of a very calm look on their face because they've been sitting on a bench somewhere listening to birds and watching butterflies and, and smelling the fragrances in the garden. So we're really trying to stagger the, the um, entries. So I think that will keep our visitors' numbers down a bit, but hopefully they'll continue to grow in the off-season, which is... Just such a spectacular time, especially winter. No, indeed. How many gardeners have you got? We have had, we just had a change of staff, about uh, two full-time gardeners and a wonderful and growing group of volunteers that just each one has brought something special to the garden and and an inspiration and an energy that is just really reinvigorating for all of us. I have been known to get in the garden. I've been allowed to use a chainsaw once or twice, which is always exciting. Oh, brilliant. But I think they've hidden it from me, so I can't do it without supervision. Oh, no more fun than using a chainsaw. So uh, but how do people get um, involved in supporting the foundation or the garden itself? Um, we, we do have a donate button on our website. Um, we love donations of interesting plants. We love volunteers. Um, any of those kinds of things... Are, are really helpful to us. Um, we will be spending the winter doing a lot of planning to think about the future of Denman's. What, how, how does this garden survive our tenure? I always look at myself as a custodian of the garden. Mrs. Robinson used to say that we are all just custodians of the land. So who are the next custodians and, and what do we leave for them? Um, we need to build, you know, sort of develop a, a better archival system. So any contributions to the foundation really go to support those activities. I was going to ask you about the future to, to end. Where, where do you see the garden in, say, five, ten years' time? Hopefully it will be a teaching garden where we will have classes, we will have perhaps apprentices, um, we have relationship with local colleges and other design schools to perpetuate both the legacies of Mrs. Robinson and John Brooks. Um, we've had a lot of young students from, from um, various 
parts of the world actually have been interested in the garden. We've had students in um, from South America and and Korea and Japan and Russia as well as around Europe and, and America. So hopefully we'll have a a more international presence again, building on the foundation that John built. He there's still a school in Argentina that um, teaches his design work that he helped found. Um, so there's a lot of relationships still to be built. Now that certainly perpetuates John's international legacy. Now, at the end of each podcast, we always ask our guests what their desert island plant would be. What would they take for one special plant if they were stranded on a, on a desert island? So, Gwendolyn, it's been great talking to you, but now there's that tricky question. What, 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 what plant would you choose? Oh, I just, I've been dreading this. <laughs> um, uh, perhaps I would take a melas with me, a crab apple tree, because I would, uh, oh my God, there's two of them. Can I have two? Yeah. And then, so I, I just love, you know, the crab apple blossoms in the, in the, in the springtime and then watching the, the fruits develop and, and persist as they change color into winter with the birds, you know, that are attracted to them. And I love Rosa butabilis, which is a, a rose that blooms just all summer. We have one at the garden that blooms starting in April and it's still blooming now. I just love it. All different colors of pink and orange and, and sort of apricot. It's just beautiful. Superb. Now, it's been great talking to you, Gwendolyn. I'm Matthew Appleby, and this has been the Horticulture Week podcast. And thanks to Gwendolyn von Parschen from the John Brooks Denman's Foundation. Make sure you never miss a Horticulture Week podcast by subscribing to Horticulture Week podcasts via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your preferred platform. And if you're interested in producing one with Hort Week, contact me, matthew.appleby at haymarket.com. Once again, thank you, and until next time, goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.